0: I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Well, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. It's a partnership with the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care. And the program today is on non-small cell lung cancer genomic testing and current treatment trends. And this is part two of living with non-small cell lung cancer. There will be a part three as well, and we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. Today's program is supported by Regeneron, Sanofi Genzyme, Boranger Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Decatur Oncology, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have many of you on the call today. There are over 237 participants on the call today, and you primarily come from the United States from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, and we also have on the call today a number of international participants from Canada, India, Kenya, Malaysia, New Zealand, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom, so it's really a global call as well, and it's a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now before we introduce our first speaker, I would like to just ask you all just a few questions really to get a sense of what you know about um, this topic before we start the program. It'll help us as we plan future programs. Um, And so I'm gonna begin with our first question. And this question, you'll be able to see, those of you who are live streaming the call, will be able to see the questions and will be able to rate them as well. So on a scale of one to five, With one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand non-small cell lung cancer treatment in the context of COVID-19, including the role of precision medicine in informing treatment decisions. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the difference between genomic and genetic testing for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of liquid biopsies in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer in the context of COVID-19 one is the highest rating, and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I understand how to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for non-small cell lung cancer, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question is, understand the role of clinical trials for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really helps us as we plan future programs on this topic um, to um, better tailor the programs to what your needs are. So thank you so much for, um, for helping with this. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Michael Offen. Dr. Offen is, at the, is with the Thoracic Oncology Service as a medical oncologist at Memorial sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Offen will be addressing non-small cell lung cancer overview in the context of COVID-19, the role of precision medicine in non-small cell lung cancer, and definition of genomics and genomic testing. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Offen.
2: Uh, thank you so much for that kind introduction. Um, again, uh, my name is Michael Offman. I'm a lung cancer oncologist at Sloan Kettering in New York, um, and it's my pleasure today to try to go over this um, these topics just proposed. Uh, it's kind of a robust um, topic to cover, so I'll do my best to cover it in the next few minutes. So, in general, um, in the discussion of lung cancer. Uh, Being diagnosed with a lung cancer is a life-altering diagnosis, regardless of stage, and it has implications both on you and your family, and it's imperative and empowering to understand the basics of your diagnosis, the workup of your diagnosis, and the implications on potential treatment options. Um, Your oncology team will help go through these diagnostic steps um, and kind of understanding disease stage and uh, things of that nature. But I think it's really important to understand the initial workup, how the COVID-19 era um, has kind of influenced that workup, and the initial steps forward to designing a treatment plan. So in general, the first step is usually involving lots of different types of pictures or images. That may range from CAT scans to PET scans to MRIs of the brain. Um, Lots of different types of blood work to make sure that, you know, uh, kidneys and liver and things like that nature are are doing well and uh, you know different treatment options would be safe um, and then a, a lot of the times there is need for biopsies be it of the tumor um, sometimes of blood which we'll talk about momentarily to try to figure out the exact type of cancer and different um, genomic issues the cancer may have which may help dictate treatment options um, so I think the first thing to think about is the pathology perspective which I know some of my colleagues will go over in more detail. Um, But when we define a lung cancer, the most important initial step is to figure out if it is small cell lung cancer or kind of everything else, and that everything else bucket um, consists of what we would call a non-small cell lung cancer. Um, And then we could define that further on how it looks under the microscope. Now, with these biopsies and consideration of surgeries and different tests, um, a lot of people uh, have rightful concerns during the COVID pandemic about frequent visits, lots of different doctors' appointments and procedures, and, you know, risks and implications to their health. And we did see during the COVID pandemic in the initial months that there was a lot um, less engagement with healthcare delivery. Um, And I think really importantly, we have seen that routine care for things like, you know, coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and routine screenings may not have been um, as proactive in the beginning because of these concerns. And we've noticed that you know, because of that, we may be finding things a bit, you know, later on than we otherwise would have. So it's, um, from our perspective, we, we've we heard our patients' concerns, and we do our best possible to make sure that we consolidate these visits, consolidate these scans and tests, um, and do it in as safe a manner as possible, while at the same time ensuring the utmost care um, and expedited workup for their diagnosis. Um, once we have kind of established the diagnosis and we have a better grasp of what the stage is, your doctor and your team uh, of clinicians would then go over what they would think is the best option based on uh, stage, the microscope findings, as well as what we call predictive markers, which include genomic testing. Um, And those types of treatments may range from collaboration with surgeons, radiation oncologists, or medical-based therapies, such as traditional chemotherapy, immunotherapy, targeted-like therapies, which we'll talk a lot about today, and, of course, potential clinical trials if applicable. Um, Kind of moving forward from there in terms of the genomic testing and targeted therapy, I think that's going to be a large portion of the discussion throughout the hour today. Um, I think it's important to kind of define what precision medicine is and uh, what genomic and genomic testing is. So for precision medicine and genomic testing, I always like to start the conversation with my patients by talking about um, a lock and a key approach. So the lock itself is what we would consider the mutation in the tumor. And so the first thing we like to do is take a look at all the potential locks that we know of that have potential keys or medications that specifically fit it. Um, If we were to find a lock or mutation in the tumor for which we have a key, be it on a clinical trial or approved, That may become an important tool in the way in which we fight the cancer, depending on the stage and prior treatments. So the use of this type of testing is to help us figure out what possible options we may have, and then your team's job is to then help integrate this into your treatment. In terms of how we do this actual testing, um, there are various different ways. Um, Breaking it down kind of in a simplistic way, it can be off of a tumor sample or a biopsy or surgical specimen or off the blood. And we can call that kind of like a liquid biopsy, where they take a sample of blood in a tube and they look for tumor DNA in that blood sample. Both of these can take a couple of weeks to result, and they look for different, uh, in general, locks in which that we have these known keys for. Um, And if it's found, your doctor would then review those results with you and discuss if they have implications on your further treatment. There are many drugs that have been approved and drugs in the pipeline for potential investigation and approval. And as such, the interpretation of these genomic results can be quite nuanced. So when these results do come back, it's uh, very important and empowering that you and your family review these with your team. If there are questions or concerns, by all means, uh, be sure to bring them up with them. Because again, it takes a lot of uh, time to review these reports and that's what your doctors are there for. Um, With that, I think what I'll do is I'll probably um, close here to allow my colleagues to go into further details about specific possible treatments and implications, and I look forward to taking your questions at the end of the call. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Offen. That was an outstanding introduction to this whole call, setting the stage, really, um, for the whole program today, and I I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Joshua Sabari. Dr. Sabari is attending physician- a thoracic medical oncology assistant professor of medicine, NYU Langone Health, Perlmutter Cancer Center. And Dr. Sabari will be addressing the role of genomic testing in the treatment of non small cell lung cancer in the context of COVID 19, specific examples of how genomic testing may inform treatment decisions, and current research in genomics and non small cell lung cancer. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague,
3: Dr. Sabari. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, uh, for having me, and I also want to thank the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care, and also my colleagues on the call, and to all the patients and and family members, Uh, thank you for joining us today and uh, spending your time with us. So thank you, Dr. Offen, for introducing the topic of lung cancer, and, you know, really starting off on the concept of stage. Stage is really important. That's the concept of where did the cancer start in the body, and where has the cancer learned to travel? And I want to break it up into two parts. So early-stage disease, that's where the cancer starts in the lung and stays in the lung. Uh, and, you know, we think of that as stage 1, 2, and 3. And that is treated in a curative intent setting, and we'll talk about that. Whereas stage 4, uh, or advanced stage disease, is generally treated with systemic therapies or therapies that can go all over the body. So in a stage four cancer, which we'll really focus on today for the uh, driver mutations or uh, targeted therapy, um, these are cancers that start in the lung and unfortunately learn how to travel either through the blood or the lymph channels to other places in the body. Uh, So we see metastases, uh, for example, in other locations. And when we think about a stage four cancer, we need a therapy that can also travel all throughout the body. And there are three major subtypes, as Dr. Offen had already mentioned, The first type is chemotherapy, and chemotherapy uh, can kill cancer cells, but unfortunately can also kill normal cells. And that's why we see some of the side effects with chemotherapy. It's important to note that chemotherapy remains an important part uh, of your care and your loved one's care in 2021, but we're clearly moving and trying to learn about new options uh, with less uh, potential side effects for our patients. The second type of therapy that we often discuss is immunotherapy. And this is relatively new, really, the past six, seven years. And immunotherapies are medicines that actually don't kill cancer cells. But what they do is they rev up your immune system to better recognize and attack cancer. And the last type of therapy uh, is targeted therapy, which we'll really focus on today. And targeted therapy can be pills, but they can also be intravenous infusions of medicines that directly target a specific abnormality in your cancer, Sort of how Dr. Offen mentioned that lock and key model. If your cancer has that specific lock, sometimes we can match that specific key uh, that can target uh, that specific abnormality in your cancer. So how do we decide which treatments to use in which patients? So as Dr. Offen mentioned, we look at biomarkers um, or signals on the cancer cells, for example, to predict which treatments might be effective. And we also look at genomic testing or genetic information in the cancer that may guide to specific abnormalities. So in the sense of genomic testing, it's critical that all patients diagnosed with a lung cancer um, ask their physicians, did I have or did you do, did you send, did we send genetic testing? And Dr. Often mentioned we can do that on the tissue. We can also do that in the plasma from the blood. And many tests test different numbers of genes. There are some tests that test over 500 genes. Other tests test one gene. And some tests can test about 10 or 15 genes. And it's important to discuss with your physician what type of genetic testing you're having for your cancer. And for lung cancer, the importance is that there are eight different genetic mutations or abnormalities, that we have actionable therapies or therapies that are FDA-approved that can be used to help improve outcomes, survival, but most important, quality of life. So the most common mutations that we talk about are mutations in a gene called EGFR and ALK, and there are many other alterations. And I wanna actually talk about some of the specific uh, sort of scenarios where identifying these mutations can actually change the arc of the patient's life, but also in the sense of guiding the correct possible therapy. So, for example, the EGFR mutation, which is quite common, occurring in about 20 to 25 percent of people with lung cancer here in the United States, and for example, in East Asia or China, occurring in about 30 to 50 percent of patients, more commonly seen in women, uh, those who've never smoked, uh, and also um, in people of East Asian descent. And again, it's not clear why these mutations occur more often in specific populations but there is ongoing research into this area. So if somebody was to be identified to have an EGFR mutation, um, this is a mutation that drives the cancer or allows the cancer to grow. If we can target that cancer with a pill, um, and there are multiple different therapies for this type of cancer, we would prefer to start a targeted therapy or a pill. The most common pill used here in the United States for this type of cancer is osimertinib. And when sitting down with a patient with stage 4 EGFR mutant lung cancer, I often have the discussion about chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and targeted therapy. And the way that we decide upon the targeted therapy is because the outcomes on prior clinical trials have been far better. So people live longer, live better, uh, and have less side effects when we use specific targeted therapies so it's really important to ask your physician what mutation is driving my cancer and are there any specific targeted therapies that are available in the era of covid19 it's even more important to do genomic testing because it's critical to understand the best possible treatment for a patient as well as limiting uh, their contact with the healthcare system so it was somebody with an egfr mutation who has started on a oral therapy I may need to see them once every three months once things are stable and I know that they're responding well to therapy. And also the EGFR type or directed therapies uh, do not potentially suppress the immune system as much as chemotherapy would. Uh, And again, in the context of COVID-19 and in the context of trying to limit contact with the healthcare system, again, even more important to understand what the best possible therapies are. For patients with lung cancer, I want to end just on a last note uh, KRAS or KRAS G12C, which is a different alteration um, commonly identified in people who have smoked in the past. Um, Very common, 30% of patients with lung cancer. The KRAS G12C, about 14% of patients with lung cancer. We now have an FDA approved therapy sodoracid, which has been recently approved about three or four months ago now, in patients who have growth of their cancer after chemotherapy and immunotherapy. So lots of ongoing areas of excitement, ongoing areas of research in this setting to try to identify and define what medicines or what therapies will work best for specific patients. So again, please ask your physician, your team, what is my genetic alteration? Are there any potential matched targeted therapies for me? Uh, thank you for your attention.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Sabari. That was a very, very um, wonderful talk, which is quite outstanding, and actually um, gave people a lot of um, hints about um, how treatment, different treatment choices are made, and all the new things that are happening. And kind of very inspiring for people to hear that and to be sure to uh, communicate with your physicians about that, so you're getting the most latest treatment available. So, thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during a Q and A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Victoria Lai, and Dr. Lai is Assistant Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Lai will be addressing key questions to ask your healthcare team about genomic testing and its benefits for your treatment choices, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and follow-up care, as well as open notes discussion with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lai.
4: Uh, Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the kind introduction. And um, thank you to all of our listeners uh, for taking the time to join us today. Um, The first part that I'll cover are um, key questions to ask your healthcare team about genomic testing and benefits for your treatment choices. Um, And I want to thank doctors uh, Austin and Sabari for giving such a wonderful overview of um, genomic testing um, in the context of lung cancer. So in 2021, currently, the standard of care for non-small cell lung cancer um, is genomic testing, particularly in the uh, stage four setting at initial diagnosis. And, um, you know, uh, it's not yet standard for small cell lung cancer or some of the less common subtypes of um, lung cancer, such as large-cell neuroendocrine or carcinoid tumors. Um, but what I would recommend is um, absolutely talk to your healthcare team about genomic testing. And particularly in non-small cell lung cancer, uh, we are starting to move uh, many of these targeted therapies to an earlier stage setting, um, par- uh, particularly in the context of clinical trials. Um, so, for example, in 2020, um, uh, the uh, same medication that Dr. Savari was referring to earlier, osimertinib, uh, which targets EGFR mutations, um, was found to be beneficial for patients who had earlier stage lung cancer, stage 1 to 3, who had undergone surgery. Um, and subsequent chemotherapy. And so now this has become our new standard of care is to add the EGFR targeting treatment for patients um, who have earlier stage cancer. And I know at our center and many others, um, there are more and more clinical trials um, uh, trying to test many of these targeted therapies at an earlier point of time for patients um, to try to improve cure rates Uh, for uh, early stage and locally advanced lung cancer, so uh, specifically stages one to three. So while we traditionally um, primarily did genetic testing for patients with stage four disease, I think it's really important, regardless of what stage of lung cancer you have, to talk to your uh, um, physicians about the importance of genetic testing and whether or not it would benefit you. And this is also particularly relevant if you have a rare subtype of lung cancer that's less common um, such as large cell or endocrine um, carcinoma or carcinoid tumors, because you might, um, there might be the chance that there can be a driver mutation that's found for which there could potentially be a, either an approved therapy or a therapy that's available through a clinical trial. Um, I think it's also important to ask about the method of testing, whether it's going to be tissue based or blood based. And what the timeline of getting the results back would mean, and is that especially what type of platform or testing, and and how the results will look, and um, are you, uh, and particularly, are the results going to be uh, impactful for the current treatment, or is it more planning for the future? Um, and finally, um, you know, unfortunately, cancer care is one of the a uh, 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 highest costing field in and uh, 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 presents a burden for our patients and their families so I would recommend that you ask um, uh, and make sure that every uh, all of the testing is covered through your insurance plan so that there aren't any unexpected costs um, and burdens to you and your family. Um, and um, again, I think the bottom line is to uh, encourage asking about genetic testing early on um, at initial diagnosis, regardless of the stage of cancer. This is really the main shift um, that, that we've seen over the last few years, um, where we're, not, we're no longer just reserving genetic testing for patients with really advanced and metastatic disease. Um, and with that, I wanted to shift a little bit to talk about um, another uh, trend that we're seeing in healthcare, which is uh, uh, the use of telehealth and telemedicine appointments, um, a lot of technology being um, deployed um, initially when COVID first uh, broke out. But I think uh, these technologies are here to stay, and they ha- they definitely uh, serve a place and-, and is a wonderful tool for, for our um, patients and their families to connect with their healthcare team. Uh, I think in terms of preparing for a telehealth visit, Um, every hospital and every healthcare system is using a different platform. So familiarize yourself with the platform. um, Use the office support staff to help you prepare for your visit. Um, Make sure you're in a quiet place with a good Internet connection. And um, I think one of the benefits of telehealth um, is that uh, while you might only uh, be able to bring one or two visitors to an appointment with you, and, and, and um, your visitors would have to be geographically in the same location as you, the, the nice thing about telehealth is you can really have um, a family members who are located in different areas of the country, even the world, join you during a virtual visit, um, And uh, that's something that we really uh, recommend our patients take advantage of, um, particularly if you're going for an initial visit. Um, If you have uh, a a friend, a significant other, children, um, parents who who, um, would be uh, part of your care team and who will be participating in your care, we absolutely recommend that they they call in for the visit. Um, It's always helpful to prepare a list of questions in advance, and um, as the visit progresses, um, don't be shy. If, you, if there is something that the healthcare team is discussing or your physician is discussing that's not clear, um, ask plenty of questions. Ask the team to repeat anything that you're not clear about. Um, they're trying to relay information to you in a way that's uh, beneficial for you, and you want to make sure that you understand exactly what's being discussed. Um, and then finally, when closing the visit, because you're not there in person, just um Make sure you have that discussion. If it's not prompted by your um, uh, physician, that it's clear what the next steps are, what the follow-up plan is going to be, and uh, make sure you stay in close contact with the team to uh, uh, to make sure that your care continues to move forward. Um, and finally, I want to close the discussion um, with a uh, brief discussion on open notes. Uh, and open notes is uh, initially started as a research initiative, and and, and is now Really a national international movement that's focused on making healthcare more open and transparent by encouraging healthcare systems that include doctors, nurses, therapists, and other healthcare professionals to share clinical visit notes with patients. Um, and this is usually done through um, a patient care portal um, electronically um, and done in real time. And studies have shown that by facilitating Uh, patient's legal right to access their own uh, medical record in in real time without any additional cost or time burden. Um, Patients have reported better understanding of their diagnosed conditions. They feel more in control of their healthcare decisions. Um, And they just feel, and it helps to foster and build trust between the physician, the healthcare team, and the patients and their families. Um, And I know this is something, at our center at least, it's been relatively new, something that we rolled out this summer uh, by sharing clinical um, visit notes with patients in real time. And I know initially there was uh, some... Anxiety involved from from both patients and, and providers. Um, you know, would, would the notes provide more confusion, uh, raise more questions, or would they actually be helpful in reinforcing the topics that were discussed during that visit and uh, serve as a uh, note for you to essentially go back to if you couldn't remember exactly what was discussed or what the recommendations were or what some of the medication adjustments were? Um, I do think that. Um, overall, um, based on what we've uh, seen and experienced and based on what research and studies have shown, this is uh, a helpful tool for patients. Um, and if it's something that is going to be more anxiety-provoking for you, it's, it's not something that you have to look at. Um, but I, I do think overall it's beneficial for, for patients to have this resource available um, Available to them in real time at their fingertips um, in case there's any question about their care or what the current plan is. Um, I know that uh, uh, the, based on federal mandates, um, this is going to be rolling out to more and more healthcare centers. So if you're not aware of open notes or any kind of patient portal uh, with your current healthcare team, um, ask them about this next time when you go. Or um, if they don't yet have it available in electronic form, ask them what a Uh, what the easiest way is for you to have access to your medical record in real time as you move through the care process. Um, And I I think over the next um, year or so, we're going to see this roll out more and more across healthcare systems and um, um, hopefully moving towards a system where we can also start to share uh, records between different hospital systems electronically to facilitate patient care. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll close, and um, we'll be happy to take uh, questions at the end. Um, and, Dr. Mesner, I'll turn the program back to you.
1: Well, oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Lai. That was really excellent, just really an outstanding presentation, and really a lot of great clarity about um, the communication issues and questions to ask. And um, I know there will be questions for you um, at the, when we do the Q&A, but I just want to thank you so much for your um, outstanding presentation. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is a pathologist um, and with Hospital Pathology Associates, PA, Division of Cytopathology, Gynecologic and Perinatal, Perinatal Pathology, Molecular Diagnostic Lead Pathologist for Next Generation Sequencing, Development and Practice, Alina Health Laboratory, a part of Abbott Northwestern Hospital. And Dr. Kerr will be addressing the role of the pathologist, including liquid biopsies, the difference between genomics and genetics, and reviewing your pathology report with your pathologist and healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr.
5: Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and uh, hello, everyone. Thanks for the opportunity to speak to you all today. It is my great pleasure to introduce to you all the role of pathology and care of patients with lung cancer, Uh, I'll also touch base on liquid biopsies and the terms genetics and genomics in the molecular laboratory. So first I want to define pathology and what a pathologist does. Uh, I'm a pathologist who specializes in cytopathology, or the diagnosis of cancer in very small specimens, uh, and molecular pathology, which is genetic and genomic testing. Um, right now, I would have to say that, you know, more than half of my practice is caring for lung cancer patients through their laboratory results. And I think of pathology as all of the behind-the-scenes work that occurs in a clinical laboratory in the practice of medicine. So every time you get blood drawn or a biopsy or a surgery, uh, a laboratory handles those specimens and, and performs tests. The pathologist is the doctor that leads the medical laboratory and is responsible for all of those test results. Um, So, now I'll talk in more detail about how those biopsy and surgery specimens get from you, the patient, to a pathologist for the various tests that are needed for diagnosis and choosing the best therapy. Uh, so lung cancer patients will often first find out that they have a tumor growing on a scan, perform for something else or as part of screening, uh, or due to symptoms that the patient is having. And then once that tumor is discovered, some sort of minimally invasive biopsy is usually taken if it's safe to do without doing a big surgery. And, you know, a variety of clever methods have been devised to get these very tiny biopsies. So, for example, they can go through a skin with the with a needle, with uh, the guidance of a radiologist, or they can insert a scope through the throat. A lung cancer usually, a lung doctor usually does that procedure. And and the tumor can be cancer, uh, or it can be something else like an infection. So it's very important to have a diagnosis done by a pathologist. Only a pathologist can tell for sure the diagnosis by looking at the tissue under a microscope. Um, Sometimes you'll have a pathologist You might meet them as they go to the room during your biopsy to look at the cells under a microscope to make sure the biopsy is sufficient for diagnosis and other tests. Uh, And then after that biopsy, or sometimes after a lung cancer surgery, the tissue goes to the lab for for further processing so that the pathologist can look at it under a microscope and do any further tests needed for the diagnosis. So if we see cancer in the biopsy, we have to determine what kind of cancer it is. Uh, determining the primary site of the cancer or where the cancer started is the most important first step in determining the best therapy. So a pathologist will determine if the tumor is lung cancer, or if it's actually colon cancer that has metastasized to the lung, or breast cancer, or some other type of cancer. And then if it's determined that the tumor is indeed lung cancer, the pathologist has to try to determine what type of lung cancer it is. So, lung cancer, as has been previously mentioned, is divided into uh, basically small cell carcinoma and non-small cell carcinoma. And then, non-small cell carcinoma is divided into a variety of subtypes, including adenocarcinoma, or squamous cell carcinoma, or a variety of other rarer subtypes. These specific types of cancer have different approaches approaches to therapy. And The process of making this diagnosis usually takes a few days, um, but can take longer depending on the type of tumor, um, if it's an unusual or a rare type of lung cancer where multiple pathologists need to look at it or extra tests are needed to help make the correct diagnosis. The diagnosis is then issued in a document called a pathology report, which will be available to you and your medical record to go over with your cancer team. And I really encourage you to have a copy of this report going forward, especially if you move between healthcare systems. Um, And this will ensure that your pathologist, you know, if you go to a new healthcare system or a different cancer team in the future, is aware of the details of your history. And these are very specific details we're looking for in that pathology report uh, when looking at any subsequent pathology specimens that you have. Um, So next I'll talk about molecular testing, including genetics, uh, genomics, and liquid biopsies. So after diagnosis, lung cancer patients will often have their tests done on their tumor to determine the type of therapy that is most likely to work best for them, either at first line or down the road in the future after a first treatment. So words are used like genetics, genomics, molecular testing, next-generation sequencing, And these are often used interchangeably. And, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about the differences, but, you know, broadly speaking, genetics is the study of genes or the DNA sequence that is responsible for passing down certain inherited traits like eye color or predisposition to disease. And DNA carries the instructions for every cell in your body that the cell uses um, to function. And it's kind of like I like to think of it as the architecture plans to build a house. It's sort of like that. So cancer cells have changes in these DNA instructions or plans that help them survive and grow faster than normal cells. And, and we can test for those genetic changes in a molecular laboratory. And so then when we talk about genomics rather than genetics, even though we sometimes use those terms interchangeably, um, genomics is how the genes in the DNA sequence function together and how those DNA instructions interact with environmental factors like drug therapies uh, to determine outcomes like cancer treatment response. So, um, you know, I would say genomics is really, it's a growing field and there's still a lot that we have to learn about the instructions that are provided by the DNA um, and how those play a role in health and disease. Um, When we're thinking about genetics, genomics, molecular testing, or next-generation sequencing in the context of lung cancer, usually what we're talking about is the testing of lung tumor tissue to determine what changes have happened in the genetics of the lung cancer cells, and we make a genomic uh, prediction on how the tumor will respond to certain types of therapy. So the most important tests in lung cancer, and some of these we've discussed already, Diagnosis are generally testing of genes like EGFR, ALK, ROS1, KRAS, MET, RET, BRAF, and HER2, among many others. Um, and, and since there are so many genes that are important, your doctor will often order all of these tests at once as part of a single next generation sequencing or for short, NGS panel. Uh, a test that is not part of NGS, though, is PDL1. PDL1 um, is a test that we do by uh, staining tissue and looking at it under a microscope to determine if the tumor itself or the immune cells that are around it are expressing a protein called pd one And the immune system actually fights cancer in a way um, that's very similar to the way that it, the immune system fights off an infection. So this protein called pd one actually helps tumors to hide from the immune system so that the body can't fight off the cancer by itself like it would an infection. And so what immunotherapies do is they block the pd one signaling pathway so that the immune system can be revved up to fight the, the cancer better. Uh, and pd one testing can be important in some lung cancer patients, uh, although many lung cancer patients could be eligible for immunotherapy at some point in their treatment, regardless of pd one status, due to a variety of other... Uh, tumor genetic factors that make lung cancers often recognizable to the immune system uh, with the help of this immunotherapy. Um, And then finally, I'll talk about uh, liquid biopsy specifically. So liquid biopsy is the use of blood for molecular tests that I've described on lung tumor tissue, um, generally uh, done on a biopsy. So cancer cells release small pieces of their DNA code into the bloodstream, and that's called cell-free DNA, and we can test that released cell-free DNA for the same genetic mutations that we would test for in the tumor tissue itself. And it's important to know that in most cases, liquid biopsy doesn't totally replace the need for doing a tissue biopsy for a pathologist diagnosis for the reasons that I had mentioned. Um, But liquid biopsy can be helpful if there's not enough biopsy tissue to do the molecular testing. Um, or it can help monitor how a tumor is responding to treatment. So tumors can develop new mutations during treatment that can cause treatment to be less effective. Sometimes this happens sort of suddenly, and liquid biopsies can sometimes detect these mutations before a new biopsy is taken from the tumor for what's called resistance mutation testing. So if the liquid biopsy test is positive, that can be really helpful in predicting what's going on with the tumor, um, but if it's negative, it could be a false negative, and the tumor could still have an important mutation, um, so just be aware that testing of tumor tissue is still considered, in, in many cases, to be the gold standard when comparing blood testing to tumor testing. Uh, so, that's all I have for today. Thanks so much for listening to me talk about pathology, and I'd be happy to answer any questions at the end. I'm turning the conference back over to Dr. Mesner.
1: Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was really outstanding and really provides our participants a really careful and thoughtful review of the role of a pathologist and all these different tests that they're having done and from a pathology perspective. So thank you so much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, and thank you so much. Um, And um, our next speaker is... This is Dr. Amy Moore, and Dr. Moore is Vice President, Global Engagement and Patient Partnerships, Longevity Foundation. And Longevity Foundation is an important partner on all of our lung cancer programs that we do. And uh, Dr. Moore will be addressing Longevity Foundation's key programs and services and how to access their helpline and website. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Moore.
6: Thank you for that introduction and for having us as part of this panel today. I've really enjoyed listening to all the uh, presenters and all the valuable information they shared. And so I just want to share briefly about Longevity's resources. So Longevity is the nation's leading lung cancer nonprofit, and we're changing outcomes for people with lung cancer through research, education, and support. Longevity initiatives position us as thought leaders in the lung cancer advocacy community, providing programs and driving change for those with lung cancer today and in the future. People impacted by lung cancer can get help navigating their cancer from our website, our lung cancer helpline, and from survivor and caregiver mentors who've been where they are. Our peer-to-peer Lifeline support program connects lung cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers to mentors to get and give advice, encouragement, and hope. We also have virtual patient Zoom meetups four times a week, multiple private patient and caregiver groups online, and provide multiple ways for people to get involved in the fight against lung cancer. We also have online groups for different oncogene types, as well as for those diagnosed with small cell lung cancer. We also host multiple in-person events across the country to educate and support patients at the community level. And just recently, we launched our newest offering, which we're calling the Lung Cancer Patient Gateways, which kicked off with the Cape. KRAS gateway. And these are effectively one stop shops where patients and caregivers can find information about their lung cancer subtype, find a specialist, get information and learn about clinical trials, connect with community and other uh, patient groups, read the latest news, and find events. We've been talking, obviously, today about the importance of genomic testing or comprehensive biomarker testing. And so we also have, um, since we're in the midst of Lung Cancer Awareness Month, we kicked off a campaign called NOVEMBER, know November, where we're encouraging patients to know your biomarker. We want to make sure that no one is missed and that all patients have access to the right treatment at the right time. So it's important to remember that anyone with lungs can get lung cancer, and we want patients and their families to know that they don't have to go through this alone. So I encourage you to visit our website, www.longevity.org, or call our helpline at 844-360-5864 to get connected. Again, thank you, Dr. Mesner, and
1: thank you to my esteemed colleagues, and it's a pleasure to be with you today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Morris. Wonderful to have you on the call today and also for people to have access to all the resources and services of the Longevity Foundation. So please do take advantage of that for all of you who, some of you already are, but for those of you who are not, please do take advantage of them. Thank you. Um, and um, I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services as an ad- additional services for all of you to access. Cancer Care is a national organization. Um, it's um, available um it all, we are available as a resource in, for all of you in every state throughout the United States. Um, Cancer Care is uh, about 78 years old as an organization, and we provide a host of services for everyone on the call today. And um mm-hmm. We also work very closely with the Longevity Foundation as well. Um, So what do we offer? Um, We have a hope line, uh, 1-800-813-4673. And if you call that number, you'll have an opportunity to speak with one of our oncology social workers. We have over 40 oncology social workers who are here to offer support um, to all of you who call our hope line. And people call for many different reasons. And then we also offer online support groups on many different types of topics, um, topics um, on lung cancer, on different types of cancers, um, also for caregivers, for young adults, older adults, so really uh, really the whole gamut of services. And the, that information you can access from our website, www.cancercare.org. In addition, we have a whole case management unit, and that unit will help you with resources that you need to find to help you, perhaps something that we don't have, and we want to be sure you get that help you need. Some of you have issues around food insecurity, financial issues and so we very much our staff there will virtually go with you to an organization that they feel will be helpful to you and connect you we won't just give you a list of places to call we will also actually um, connect you to those organizations and be sure your needs are being met and we'll stay with you until those needs are met that's really important Um, we also offer um, of course these type of workshops we also offer Publications. Um, we have a number of different publications on different topics, including lung cancer, um, and we also um, also offer practical and financial assistance, which is tremendously helpful. And we also have a copay foundation, so that we recognize that people have very specific financial and practical needs, and our staff work very diligently to try to connect you with both our resources and those of other organizations as well. So I hope that gives you just a very quick snapshot of many of the programs that we offer at Cancer Care. And now, before we move on to our polling, which is, to, I'm sorry, before we move on to our Q&A section, we're now going to just ask you a few questions um, as we can, as we just um, to get a sense of the, what you've learned today from the program. So I'm going to start. For those of you who are live streaming, you'll be able to um, address the questions. Um, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to uh, rate them. So on a scale of 1 to 5, with 1 the highest rating and 5 the lowest rating, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of non-small cell lung cancer treatment in the context of COVID-19, including the role of precision medicine um, in informing treatment decisions. 1 is the highest rating and 5 the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the difference between genomic and genetic testing for non-small cell lung cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of liquid biopsies in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to ask questions and work with the healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain of non small cell lung cancer. Again, one is the highest rating, and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. Um, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of participating in clinical trials for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really helps us um, to um, best Tailor the programs to meet your needs so that we, these, those of you who participated in these questions will really help us as we move forward in planning many programs um, in, the, in the year ahead, actually, and, and actually 2022, 20, uh, which is right upon us, actually. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A. So I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and Norma will explain to you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Norma?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And again, to ask a question, please press star then 1.
1: We have a question from front of our online participants, and this will be for Dr. Kerr. What is the difference between genomic and genetic testing?
5: Yeah, so... A lot of times um, people use those terms interchangeably, and so it's not as straightforward as one might think. Um, Genetics I like to define as as being changes that occur in the DNA or instructions that cells use to function. And changes in those plans can, you know, help them, like it happened that cancer can help them to grow faster than the normal cells around them. Um, genetics is also used to define things that can be inherited, so, for example, a hereditary predisposition to cancer, which is rare in, in lung cancer but is known to occur. And then um, genomics, sort of diff- a little bit differently, um, describes how those DNA plans, sort of those genes in the DNA plans, interact with one another and interact with the environment. Um, so. Um, For example, the genetic code of a cancer might have a change in it that when uh, that change interacts with a a drug treatment um, results in uh, a response to treatment. So we might think of that as genomics, and there might be actually multiple genes that interact with each other um, that predict whether a certain treatment will respond. Uh, certain um, treatment will be successful in, in treating a particular tumor that has a, a certain DNA sequence. And so the the differences between those terms is, is pretty nuanced, but I sort of think of it, the genetics as being the underlying code and the genomics being how that code uh, interacts with the environment and, and drug treatments and so forth.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And um, another question. Um, uh, for Dr. Sabari, can EGFR mutations evolve into different mutations? What retreatments are available?
3: Yeah, so that's a great question. So <clears throat> EGFR mutations are uh, a, a dominant or a clonal mutation, meaning that the initial cancer cell uh, has that mutation. We, we, we define it as a truncal mutation, and all the other potential daughter cells uh, that come thereafter will also have that mutation. Um, when we then apply a selective pressure with a therapy like osimertinib or other EGFR inhibitors, you can either select out for uh, potential resistance mutations, other mutations, or maybe new mutations uh, can arise. Um, so the, the cancer cells will always have that, you know, first EGFR mutation, but then you may see other mutations that occur down the road. You know, like C797S, for example, or, you know, non EGFR mutations like amplification, which may be responsive uh, to other therapies. There is a rare entity, and really we have Dr. Lai on the call, one of the world experts here, in small cell or small cell transformation, where EGFR mutant lung cancer actually, you know, sort of changes or has a histological transformation. Uh, to have two new alterations or selection for alterations for RB1 and P53. And, and it's, again, important. We talked a lot about plasma or, or liquid biopsy versus tissue biopsy. If there is concern for histologic transformation, particularly in a patient with an EGFR mutation, really important to biopsy uh, the growing area of disease and not to only rely on a plasma uh, liquid biopsy. So, again, really important to understand your genetics not only up front, but actually throughout your treatment course, because, you know, resistance can, can actually be targeted uh, if we identify what resistance mutation is driving the cancer.
1: Excellent. And Dr. Lai, do you want to comment further? Or... <laughs> um, uh, uh,
4: can you hear me? Uh, is yes, the audio okay? sure. um Yes, of course, um, course. yes. Um, no, I think, um, I think everyone summed it up, um, very nicely. Um, uh, you know, I, I think outside of, uh, non-small cell lung cancer, we are still trying to better understand different, uh, molecular contributors to, uh, 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 generation and, um, growth and development of, uh, of cancer. And so, um, uh, that's where a lot of our focus and, and research is on um uh, fortunately in non small cell lung cancer we've made the most um uh, uh, advancements in terms of um identifying uh, different uh, molecular alterations and then um uh, moving ahead with clinical trials to have um uh, that 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 have led to drug approvals for many of these drivers um i think there does, uh, does need to be um Uh, emphasis on similar efforts in other tumor subtypes as well.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Offen, a question for you. What are the differences between prognostic biomarkers and predictive biomarkers? Which
2: one should my doctor test for? Um, That's a great question. So in general, both prognostic and predictive biomarkers are something that are important and routinely considered for testing. Um, For a predictive biomarker, that's something that um, we look for that may help us understand of a certain type of drug, medication, targeted therapy, immunotherapy, um, may be beneficial or thought to be more beneficial for your tumor. So, for instance, the presence of an EGFR sensitizing alteration may be predictive of response to medications such as osimertinib. Um, and prognostic biomarkers are things that may have implication on, you know, the overall responsiveness of the, t- the, the cancer or kind of the um, you know, it may help risk stratify uh, the aggressiveness of a tumor. So I think in general, both of them have a very important place in understanding the tumor um, and are routine things to be considered for testing. And uh, definitely both are worth discussing with your oncologist.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and um, um, these are wonderful questions. I have to say this is a really uh, very well-informed audience. Um, so on um, a question here a um, uh, about liquid biopsies for, I guess, for Dr. Kerr. Are there differences between companies doing liquid biopsies in terms of the depth of the testing? An initial testing with foundation tissue testing and garden liquid biopsy back in 2019. But I'm looking at having another liquid biopsy due to um, additional metastases. Are there particular companies I should research or suggest, or would it be best to stay with garden? Thank you. Can you address that in a general way?
5: Yeah, so that's a really good question, and you know, I'll, I'll address it generally. Um, so liquid biopsies are offered by a number of companies that are out there. It sounds like you're aware of that. Um, some of those are FDA-approved, and some of those are considered to be what we call laboratory-developed tests or tests that are, you know, considered to be just as good and are as highly regulated but are not don't have that FDA stamp of approval. And um, you've mentioned some of the companies that offer those tests. Now, if you're, you know, if you're looking for just generally mutations that are in the blood that are released by cancer cells, I would say generally these um, companies, if they're reputable, and you, know, you should talk with your doctors about what they think are the reputable companies for liquid biopsies. A number of these um, uh, tests are roughly equivalent for detecting these mutations, and you know, over time, you know, it might not matter which company you go with for your liquid biopsy. Now, if you're looking at um, circulating tumor DNA levels over time, so there's this um, newer concept of looking for um, minimal residual disease, then it's probably better if the company offers that testing over time to stick with the same company. So they know the mutation that's in your tumor, and they're looking for that mutation, hopefully at a lower level as you're responding to treatment. And then in those cases, it's probably better to stick with the same company. So it's It's a really complicated um, question and answer, and I encourage you to talk with your oncologist about whether, you know, it makes sense to go with a different company, if it's more cost-effective for you, or whether you should stick with the same company over time.
1: Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. And um, a question for Dr. Um, Offen. Will the genomic testing help decide which treatment is best for
2: me? So that's a great question um, and I think, you know, um, echoing a lot of what my colleagues have said today, I think it's definitely helpful and can form the right treatment options. Um, so if, you know, for instance, there is an actionable alteration or a lock for which there is an approved key, depending on, you know, that specific key and when it's imp- uh, what, it, what line of therapy it's approved for, it most definitely can help, you know, dictate the, the proper approach to initial therapy um which again is kind of why we would say that the integration of genomic testing um into the initial kind of understanding of your tumor has become a standard approach uh in, at least within the United States and uh I would uh, you know argue more globally as well um so yes most definitely it, it can help dictate care
1: excellent thank you and um And for Dr. Sabari, um, what steps can I take to get comprehensive biomarker testing? Is it offered by all
3: doctors? Yeah, so, you know, most oncologists who focus on the treatment of lung cancer are going to be well-versed and aware of, uh, you know, large, broad panel, next-generation sequencing. You know, I'm not sure that doing a broad, large panel is always necessary. I mean, some people get smaller panels, where you only get 10 or 15 genes, and that might be very helpful in help guiding therapy. Uh, If you're looking for a larger, broader panel, uh, it might be useful to help or ask your clinician to send your sample out to a commercial laboratory. Um, We heard some of the companies uh, on on the call today uh, to do the testing or uh, to see a physician in an academic medical center as a second opinion uh, and to get uh, your tissue slides sent. Uh, and uh, um, have that large, broad panel uh, next-generation sequencing testing done. I would always recommend that if you're making a decision about next treatment options, um, particularly uh, um, sort of uh, if you haven't had testing done or you don't recall the testing, bring that up with your doctor to say, hey, what were my genetic testing results? And I like that November, K-N-O-W. I really like that a lot because it's important for you to uh, sort of be educated and an advocate for yourself to help guide the best possible treatment for you.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um, I want to thank all our speakers. I'm going to ask our speakers, if, including that you would just each give a takeaway of what you'd like people to take away from today's call. I'm going to start in the order that you presented, so I'm going to ask Dr. Offen to give a, a sentence, just uh, what you'd like people to take away from today's program.
2: <laughs> I would say that um, the most uh, important thing is to feel empowered, to talk to your oncologist and oncologic team about the use and utility of genomic testing and precision medicine for your care. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr.
3: Sorry. Yeah, I think that if you don't test, you can't find it, right? So, again, really, you know, echoing Dr. Offen, it's important that you speak up, particularly if you're seeing an oncologist who is not, you know, testing uh, routinely. And we see that, unfortunately, in the community as well in some academic settings. So really speaking up for yourself, uh, communicating your needs uh, to your physician, your health team, is critical to get the best possible therapy for you. Excellent, and Dr. Lay,
4: um, I think um, I, I do want to echo what my colleagues have um, uh, said previously, and I think from from my portion of the talk, I really just want to emphasize that um, please do ask about uh, genetic testing, um, uh, regardless of the stage of your cancer. Um, uh, uh, most um, uh, most academic centers and um, in, in, uh, practices. Um, uh, are are able to uh get genetic testing done regardless of the the stage of cancer either under some type of research program or commercially based um a, a commercially available testing um and more information um earlier on is always helpful to um plan the most optimal care and it doesn't have to be a, 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 like Dr. um Sabari mentioned earlier it doesn't have to be a very uh the most broader the most comprehensive testing but um at least testing for the uh, known key genetic alterations um, for uh, lung cancer would be very important.
1: And uh, um, Dr. Um, Kerr, thank you.
5: Yeah. So um, one takeaway message I like to give patients is that you know cancer patients are surviving their first cancers, and sometimes you know after years of surviving a first cancer, developing other cancers. Um, So this is good news in that we're getting better at treating cancer, but it becomes a lot more complicated as a pathologist when I'm looking at second and third cancers. And so part of the the good treatment uh, and ongoing care for those patients is making sure that those pathology records are kept. Uh, so you might be in a new health care system um, when you develop another cancer, and it's very important to have the records of the prior cancer, and maybe even your oncologist will request the slides from your prior cancer for your um, pathologist to look at for subsequent treatment. It's so important to have those records so that we can make the most accurate diagnosis.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And Dr. Moore? I mean, I think it's key
6: that patients and caregivers understand that they don't have to navigate this alone and that they should avail themselves of all the incredible resources that Longevity provides. Um, there's a wealth of information out there that's that's ready for them to tap into, so definitely take advantage.
1: Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been a phenomenal group. Um, I have to say that uh, um, and I also want to thank all our participants. Um, these have been This is. – we've done a number of programs on this topic, but today's questions were really outstanding. Our speakers were outstanding. It was great. We could go on for another hour. There are many more questions in queue, so I want to address that, the issue of the questions in queue right now. Um, for those of you who um, – haven't um, who asked a question, or for those of you who have yet a question to ask and would like to ask your question, or are thinking of another question, um, we suggest that you all go back to your treating healthcare team with what you've learned today, and ask your treating healthcare team your question again, again, because they know you the best. They have all your records, um, and so they have all that information that they need. Um, about you know, about you to best answer your question, um, you know so that's really very important um, and then um, and then the other thing is um, that um we also want you to realize that you're going to have ongoing dialogue with your physicians, you've gotten a lot of information you'll be able to discuss with them. You can do it either in an in a upcoming visit, if it's soon, or you can do it as a telehealth, telemedicine visit, whichever works best for you. But very important to work with your health care teams. That's really very important. Also, um, as we conclude the program today, um, we don't want any of you to feel that you're alone in coping with lung cancer, any type of cancer. Um, first of all, you have your health care team, which consists of many different disciplines in addition to your um, oncologists, the whole healthcare team, the nurses, the social workers, the financial specialists, um, patient navigators. Um, there are many different members of that team that can help you with any questions or concerns you may have. You also have, of course, the resources of the Longevity Foundation, which is an enormous resource to all of you on the call today. And I should mention to all of you that at the end of today's program, well, tomorrow you'll be getting a SurveyMonkey evaluation. And in that evaluation, there will be um, a um uh, questions that will ask you about what you thought about today's program, but there also will be um, all the resources we mentioned today and then some, so that you'll be having some additional resources to follow up with in terms of getting additional help. Um, you also can contact the Oncology Social Work staff at Cancer Care, um, and again, you'll be getting um, both the links to Longevity Foundation and to Cancer Care, so you'll have that information at your fingertips. That's really important. And, of course, um, so, I, I, it is tempting during this, this COVID uh, period for people to feel even more alone than they ordinarily might feel in coping with uh, lung cancer, any type of cancer. We want you to now know that there is a whole community of support out there, um, and that consists of both your healthcare team, um, the resources you can access from all the different organizations on today's program, Longevity Foundation, Cancer Care, all the online support groups that are there. Um, we do ask you to go to credible resources, so we'll be giving you credible resources to utilize. Um, we also offer, in addition to these programs, we also offer um, um, some different types of educational and support groups that people find very helpful. Um, as well as uh, circle groups that are very helpful to people as well. So you'll be able to access that information, and we'll send you information about those as well. So, again, I want to thank you all for your participation, participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.